Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. This is the third in a series of extra podcasts focusing on the COVID-19 crisis. Today's guest, uh, we have Bob Reed, who is the co-founder of a very interesting uh, company called Everest. Everest is a decentralized platform for for a new economy, incorporating a massively scalable payment solution, a multi-currency wallet, and a native biometric identity system. Everest, as far as I know, has about the most complete solution out there, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit. Uh, But more to the point, I've invited Bob on uh, to talk a little bit about how best to think about phasing the deployment of the universal basic income, uh, the UBI, that has been, at least in part, specified in the uh, uh, relief bill that's working its way through the U.S. Congress as we speak. Uh, and now it's probably not enough, and we'll have to come back to the well a few times. But uh, let's uh, let's get uh, rolling there, uh, Bob, and talk about how should we think about delivering the UBI to 110 million American households. Probably the best place to start is uh, what do if you will, almost all infrastructure of e-government or e-bank platforms need to have. Like what are the, what are the essential elements? And the way we thought about it was we literally modeled off of Estonia, the nation, and even uh, Adahar with India stack in India, right? Like, how do you take, uh, you know, if you will, full government systems or banking systems and if you will make them digital? Now, we're coming along about 15, 20 years later after those guys and we're able to use some blockchain technologies along with some uh, I would say decentralized storage uh, techniques to actually sort of be a next generation of that. Um, now, in terms of elements that we considered that are inherent in all of those, are you always have to have identity at its base level, right? As I call it, identity is the operating system of any of these systems. You, you know, are you who you say you are? Right? And almost everyone around the world now is arriving at biometrics. You have to have deduplication of you know the human being right i'm a singular piece of carbon and that means you can't just rely on here's my proof of address from my bank or here's my passport you got to get to the biometrics the other piece uh, of the equation is going to be uh, an account right so you need to be able to do uh, a wallet in today's vernacular but a way to actually store value and transfer in and out associated with uh, that identity. Uh, We did something unique at Everest where we actually made the account in distributed storage or in the cloud. So you actually don't even need a device to to reach it. The other two elements you need are you need a ledger. So something goes like, hey, I got to track what's coming in and out of this account. And then you need to have some sort of you know, uh, currency, unit of account, right? So you, 
in the case of UBI, um, you know, go with digital fiat. Like here's a US dollar and it means a US dollar. Those essential elements get you the basics on how to do a system. Are you who you say you are? Here's an account. Here's a way to, if you go in and out of that account, and then here's some digital money. Now, some of the benefits uh, you get out of doing digital money is you can prog program it, right? Like you can say, here's a dollar, but it has to be spent in the next 30 days, right? So you can make it time bound, right? That, so like, that solves, for example, what you know, the U.S. government tried to do in 2008 when they said, here's a, you know, a check, everyone gets it, and turns out like 60, 70 percent of the people just put it into savings. So it didn't stimulate the economy. But if you made it time bound, well, they have to spend the money. Uh, you know, some other things you can do is you say, hey, this is programmed and it can only be redeemed at the grocery store or the pharmacy for food and medicine. And so you can do some things like that. Uh, and then ultimately, like, look, you can actually reach everybody, regardless of if they have a device or not, and you can do it instantaneously. So you, you, know, you can inject liquidity into the system in minutes instead of sending out checks or debit cards and hoping and praying that somebody gets it, turns on their pin okay, and, uh, you know, doesn't sell it for... Uh, uh, for drugs behind 7-Eleven. Yeah, it sounds great. Uh, and, you know, if we had a Manhattan uh, project level of investment, we could probably get that up and running in some period of time. But it seems to me that it would be dangerous to, you know, bet the first implementation of this UBI, which we presumably want to get out in a couple of weeks, and uh, on you know, some new developments and probably a whole bunch of regulatory issues, security audits and things like that. You know, I'll tell you my own suggestion, I realize it's fraught with all the errors and problems that you brought up, but it has the advantage of being brute force and fail safe minus the inevitable, fairly significant uh, losses around the edges, which would be to go with debit cards and, you know, basically scale up something like the green dot system. And of course, all the big credit card companies have their own prepaid uh, systems. And of course, they're very expensive. That's mostly because of, they go down the retail channel uh, where, you know, everything's expensive if you push it through retail. But mm -hmm. if the uh, government gave 72 hours for the biggest credit card companies to bid on sending a debit card once a month to every American, uh, we could get that up and running in probably two weeks. And we could actually address what you discussed as what I call the uh, time to live problem on the money, because it's absolutely key that if we want this money to be stimulus, uh, it has to get into circulation and not just put into people's bank accounts. And yet, and we know that in tough times, people want to build up their bank accounts. But even with a debit card, you could say the debit card only lives for 45 days. I would provide some overlap each month, uh, but make it 45 days or 60 days. Uh, and so you get a new debit card uh, each, each month uh, and you have 45 or 60 days to spend that. Uh, and now of course uh, you go, you still have the know your customer, your identity problem. And it is kind of interesting that in the United States, we do not have a national ID, uh, right. unlike in some in countries like Germany and uh, France, et cetera, there more or less is a registry of all citizens. But we do have the beginnings of one, which is the vast preponderance of people, I don't know if it's 90, 95%, uh, file an IRS return each year. 
And so you could use that as the starting point. Uh, we could then uh, have banks be authorized to do uh, KYC on people who aren't in that database and go through a KYC, pro know your customer process, and basically provisionally enter uh, them into the same or parallel database to the IRS database. Uh, and then, of course, you have the, your final group of people who, you know, people who are homeless, et cetera, may have no ID, mentally deranged, et cetera, uh, in which case I would uh, suggest use the existing social welfare agencies, just provide them a stack of cards, knowing there's going to be some waste and some fraud, and have them pass the cards out on the street to, to homeless people, taking a, a photograph and entering it into a, a quick and dirty biometric database. Uh, that third part, you could not get up and running in two weeks, but the other two parts, you probably could. Uh, and it would provide uh, the immediate boost. Uh, uh, here's the other key thing about the debit cards. I want to get back to you when we talk about the, uh, uh, the electronic methods. The beauty of the debit card is that all the points of sale already accept it. Uh, the hard part is having to make any changes at, you know, a couple of million points of sale across the economy. Uh, everybody takes credit cards and debit cards. Uh, anyone who has one of these things in their hands can literally walk into a bodega and, uh, you know, buy, uh, you know, whatever the heck they need uh, right on the spot, no questions asked, no ID necessary. It's essentially a, uh, a bearer instrument. Uh, but of course, that has the downside of fraud. And as you said, people, you know, swapping them for, uh, for beer behind the 7-Eleven or uh, stealing them out of mailboxes. And yes, that's true, which is why we do need a, a, a better system soon. Uh, but this has the big advantage of being fail-safe and deliverable at volume very quickly. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, uh, I mentioned previously, like, if the plane is crashing and all we have are World War II parachutes, um, yeah, grab those and get out of the plane. Um, it is brute force and uh, it's costly. I think it's, you know, what we've seen out of human behavior and case study after case study is they will take the money out of the ATM and then go hoard it. And it really won't do much for stimulus. And the other piece you don't get with that is, if you will, the, the ability of adding other things. So for example, how can I then say, here's money just for testing? Like here's COVID-19 testing. Um, and once that testing is done, I now want to be able to store my COVID-19 test results that I'm positive or negative in my wallet. And so if you will, if you, if you have a, an electronic system that's based on a biometric system uh, or biometric ID, as I mentioned, you end up with multiple use cases, right? Uh, where you can actually do medical docs. You can do the state of California uh, wallet inside of there. You can do the US Treasury wallet inside of there. And you can connect to Wells Fargo and Bank of America too, right? It becomes the, the Uber wallet. Um, so that type of infrastructure, I mean, look, it's, uh, it's going to be required uh, going forward. And the only question is, how do we get there, right? Uh, as I mentioned, uh, we, we modeled after Estonia. So I was, I was actually just chatting with the ex-president of Estonia who implemented their system. And he was mentioning like, look, they're all in lockdown, um, but every interaction with the government is electronic and is up and running and working just fine right now today, right? So they're dealing with COVID-19 
in a system where they, uh, you know, it's functioning for them. Uh, and so, sort of circling back, yeah, the idea of UBI and adding liquidity to, uh, to the nation quickly, the policymakers are just dealing with antiquated tools and infrastructure, right? Like, they don't have four-lane freeways right now. They've got dirt roads. And so we're going to have to invest and in, in build something like this. Yep, I absolutely agree. I think the uh, you know context that we could place this in uh, had another one of these uh, extra podcasts with Jordan Hall yesterday, and we talked quite a bit about the fact uh, that you know one of the big takeaway lessons from this event is our society has to be willing to invest a lot ahead in terms of resilience and robustness. So even if no single business could have, uh, could ever justify building this thing out, it ought to become a you know, social, socially funded program uh, where we have this thing that you describe and may well be your system up and running, uh, you know, for the next crisis. And this is not going to be the last crisis, I can tell you that, between now and the end of the, uh, the century. Uh, yeah. so, so let's just war game it a little bit. You know, we have our World War II parachute, you know, scaled up green dot plastic debit cards. And oh, by the way, I do believe we can take care of that ATM problem, but I do think uh, making... ATM withdrawals is an option on these cards. You can make them uh, not available for uh, ATM uh, withdrawal. But nonetheless, there will still be gray market. People will buy beer and trade it for cash and things of that sort. But if you, yeah. if you, turn, if you turn off the ATM, it, it, it'll reduce it significantly. So let's say from we use the World War II parachute as long as we need to. If there was a truly uh, national at war level investment in, let's say, taking your system, uh, scaling it up and deploying it. Uh, what's a reasonable period of time with some fallback, fail safe and testing to be able to actually roll it out? Uh, first, say for one medium sized state, uh, then a couple of states and then the whole nation. So look, we've actually rolled our system out or tested it in, for example, Indonesia. Like we were given, they had a uh, scenario where they were handing out the energy subsidy, right? And they handed out physical cards and you were supposed to turn those cards into basically get a gas tank to go cook with. Uh, it's, by the way, that's $7 billion distributed to 50 million people a year, okay? And what happened there is, um, well, it's one of the biggest black markets in the world. Uh, the vast majority, like over 50% of those vouchers um, end up with the maids in Jakarta and it ends up in upper class. So it just was utterly ineffective. And so we rolled out a way to show you could send this programmable money only used by the person uh, attached literally to their face, their biometrics, um, and they could only redeem it for this gas tank. Right. So like we know our system, if it works right now today, it's proven like we were doing villages. We were out in, you know, uh, Bukatingi, like, uh, you know, in, in the Netherlands. <laughs> so what would it take to roll out here in the U.S.? It, ours is eminently scalable. The issue would be registration, right? How do you actually get a user to scan in their face and scan in their driver's license, for example? Driver's license, by the way, like it's about 90% of adults, you know, age 20 to 90 actually have a, a driver's license. So a driver's license actually has your address and your photo. So you can match your face with that photo. 
um, and from there create a wallet. So that would be the, the way to, uh, that would be the only impediment to scaling would be how long does it take to register? If you want to go full Manhattan project, you do it at the post offices and the grocery stores and you register everybody as they walk in and out, right? You, you know, come into the post office or go to your grocery store, scan your face and your driver's license uh, on the tablet and boom, you're entered and you now have a wallet that's connected to the Fed, for example, or the government. How about the other half, which I you know, alluded to on you know, where the debit cards are so useful? Point of sale. How do you get these systems? Uh, you know, someone walks into the bodega and they need to buy uh, a half gallon of milk and two loaves of bread. How does the bodega get set up to be able to accept this? So there's a couple of different ways. So if they're already doing, for example, NFC point of sales, which the vast majority are, and you have a smartphone, you can literally take your digital US dollar for groceries and scan it just like you're doing Apple Pay or you know Google Wallet, right? You can do that today. What's the penetration on those? Uh, truthfully, I'm laggard. I tend to use folding <laughs> cash or worst case, a credit card. Uh, uh, what's the penetration on things like uh, Apple Pay or Google Pay? I mean, the ability at the point of sale. Point of sale is actually uh, pretty ubiquitous, I believe. It's, there isn't as much on the smartphone penetration. That is, we all hang around with each other and all have super smartphones. Truth is, on the planet, there's like four to five billion people that don't have smartphones out of the seven and a half that exist today. So uh, Americans have a higher penetration of smartphone, but there's still a good, you know, good percentage that don't. And so, as I mentioned before, like we can actually give you a wallet up in the cloud, so you don't need a device at all. Now, in that case, for point of sale, uh, for example, in the grocery store, right where you registered, you could scan your face, put in your PIN, and have it spit out a QR code that's good for the money, right? And that QR code can be scanned at, uh, you know, at the register. Mm, okay. I like okay. that. I like that, uh, yeah. I mean, you say like the other way is like, look, if you just simply walk in and the point of sale has a camera or the clerk has a camera, like a smartphone, um, that's the point of sale too. Or I suppose uh, people like the Square payment system uh, could augment their system uh, with a camera and then yeah. hook back to your, to do the biometric processing, you know, call your database and then connect uh, to the ledger and the wallet. Uh, and again, if you partnered with people who have those inexpensive and, uh, you know, ma massively scalable point of, uh, sale, uh, devices, uh, then that would take care of particularly the little guy. I mean, the big guys, they'll figure it out, but I'm worrying about the moms and pops, right? The, uh, auto mechanics and the bodegas, et cetera. Just need a smartphone. Like they can, if you'll, I could walk in with my wallet on my phone and say, here's a payment and just literally go peer to peer. And it runs across our rails to actually ledger the transaction you know, out of my wallet and into theirs. And now what's the uh, error rate, both the, you know, the false negatives and the false positives? Because uh, it would be mighty annoying if, let's say, you're a poor person without a smartphone, you go down to the grocery to buy some stuff for your kids, uh, you know you have money in your wallet, they, they scan you, but the biometrics doesn't match. That's actually pretty solvable at scale. Uh, we've seen across the planet. It's not that as hard as it used to be. Uh, I'll give you a you know, very real sense uh, with our own government. So global entry, um, right, when you come in to the airports from overseas, used to do four fingerprints and then take a picture of yourself. 
And in the last six months, they've phased out the fingerprints and literally just gone with face. So they do face and then they look at the name of the uh, person that uh, came in on, the, on your airline ticket. And that is deduplication at a 99 point something percent. Um, it's, it's working well enough literally for our own borders. And DHS is deadly serious about this stuff. Yeah, even 99% would be considerably uh, better than the leakage you'd expect from a plastic debit card system. Yeah, and by the way, that's just biometrics. As soon as I say it's, you know, my name attached to that biometrics, then you're at 99 point something. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so it sounds like the technology is there. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah the, the biometrics is pretty commoditized now. Every, everyone's shooting at the 98, 99%. So let's go back to my original question. Let's say that uh, resources were unlimited. Somehow we actually got a political and regulatory decision to go fucking do this, right? We know that's not going to be easy, but let's say we did. Uh, And someone said, here is essentially a blank check. Uh, And and how long is it going to take, including spinning up the uh, registration process? Well, what's a safe number? Is it a year, nine months? two years? Uh, what would you say uh, if someone literally tapped you on the shoulder and said, okay, Bob, we vetted your shit. We believe it'll scale. Uh, yep. Whatever it takes, do it. We're in the neighborhood of months. And it, the, the only hesitation you'll hear in my voice is, if you will, testing. Right. So it's okay. Like, sure, we can all go, here's hundreds or thousands of tablets. Let's go ahead and run the city of San Diego, or let's go ahead and do the U.S. military, for example, as the, uh, you know, the beta test. Let's call it, you know, weeks then in terms of registering everybody. And then you would literally then have to do transactions after transactions um, to, if you will, make sure everything's robust. So blank check, we're in the neighborhood of months in terms of getting it to a position where, you know, we can show provable everything at scale. And that does not necessarily include the spin-up of registration. No, that would be registration. Like you'd pick a select population. Like I said, here's the here's a city or you know, the U.S. military. You know, we're dealing with hundreds of thousands of people. Or San Diego's two million, and you could literally have all of those people file in in a few weeks, register, get their accounts and then start sending money to them or having them transact. Absolutely. And the audience is thinking out loud here. I don't know if this adds or subtracts, but you know, let's say we want to do it in parallel while you're doing the regional test. Uh, at a national level, we could recruit a whole uh, 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 core of notaries, essentially. People who right. are vetted and are given you know, upscale devices, and anyone that comes to that notary can be registered by the notary. Right. So in Indonesia, when we rolled out, we didn't have foundational identity. That is a government ID. Uh, we were dealing in, well, in the poorer neighborhoods and they had a family card. And in that case, we literally had to have uh, BRI bank agents and sometimes government overseers to actually act as notaries to register people. Now, in the case of the US where we're dealing with 90 some percent that have foundational identity, um, you can literally do self-registration at home. You scan your driver's license, scan your face, and boom, you're off to the races. Yeah, that'll work for you know, 75% of people. Keep in mind that an yeah. amazing number of Americans are totally computer illiterate. Uh, right. 
but 75% is a good place to start. And then have the notaries, have banks, you have a, you know, uh, layers of backup. And at the end of the day, you know, social welfare agencies that go out and register people on the streets. Right. Now, what's interesting is, I mean, going back to what you were saying before is all of this does rely on, it has to have a common identity backplane. That is, I can't register myself with my driver's license in one area and then go to social welfare and get my biometrics there and then go to a third spot and say, here's my proof of address because I've got a letter from a bank. Those end up with three different identities. Um, and so this is why we always drive towards, you have to have deduplication, which is biometrics. And if you have a common identity system underneath all of that, then you've got a system that'll actually not be rife with fraud, right? And you'll actually be, you know, like I said, fundamentally, are you who you say you are? And is this account attached to you as a singular human being? Yep. And yeah, that would, if, assuming that you, that the, uh, the base layer of biometrics is indeed 99 plus percent, uh, it makes fraud not worth doing, right? Uh, you know, that's the interesting thing about crime. You don't have to have a bulletproof system to stop crime. You just have to make it such that it's, uh, uh, it mostly doesn't work and the, and the risks for getting caught are pretty damn high. Right. Right. And, and again, as part of this, I would make a really draconian loss. I would say this is wartime. Uh, anyone who attempts to defraud this system as an individual is going to get 10 years in the slammer. Anyone who gets uh, it's doing it in an organized crime fashion, life without parole, asshole. Um, and this is life enduring wartime. We should not tolerate anybody attempting to defraud the system. Right. I agree. Yeah. All right. Um, you know, the other thing that's sort of interesting along these lines as we delve into like, okay, how can you actually implement this is actually understanding who owns and controls everything. And if you will, I think the Europeans have been, you know, probably the most forward thinking on this in terms of um, GDPR, in terms of, if you will, uh, right to be forgotten and the identity is actually the users. So, um, feel in that natural social construct of the government saying, I will give you something, but tell me something about you, right? And the citizen has the right to say no, and they don't get the benefit. Um, or they have the right to say yes, and they should have the right to go, here's my, I can verify I'm me. So here's a biometric like verification, but you don't have to give the biometrics to the government. You just have to verify that you really are the guy attached to this thing. And here's my name and address, and I'm an American, for example. But for example, my bank balance and my health records probably aren't part of the social exchange of UBI, right? Actually, uh, take it back, like bank balance probably is. Like if I make too much money, I'm probably not eligible. But health records in my Instagram account certainly are not part of that exchange. And so you need to architect an identity system that allows privacy for the user and granular sharing of whatever the social contract dictates. Nice. I like that a lot. That's a beautiful architecture because uh, right. certainly most people will be willing to share a fair amount in return for the UBI, but not everything. While other things like, you know, to validate my uh, Roku box or something, you know, I'm not going to give them a damn thing except my uh, pseudo anonymous ID that's uh, attached to a payment mechanism. Yeah. You know, we say like, look, uh, <laughs> pseudonymity doesn't work for financial transactions as, you know, Facebook's Libra uh, Association found out, you know, very quickly with 
every financial regulator and every central bank in the world saying, no, that's a money laundering hole, right? By the way, to dig a layer deeper on the identity piece, it's, it's important that sort of in the 21st century, we need to think in those 21st century terms. Everyone's used to a database, right? And that's just because historically that's all we had. Um, it's important that you architect a system that actually is not a centralized database that's owned by somebody or some organization, right? You need to architect it so that literally the user actually has the keys and literally not even I or Everest or the government actually has the keys. That's dangerous. I mean, you know, uh, we've looked at this a lot. And one of the advantages of things like, uh, you know, standard American credit cards is that transactions can be reversed. You know, uh, uh, you know, there's when people lose their credentials, there's a soft way to get them back. Yep. Uh, you know, the private key signature world of uh, blockchain uh, has some real downsides. Um, yeah, if you will, transactions are different than, if you will, identity key holding. So I'll give you a sense. The way we architected uh, the identity, if you will, we've got a couple blockchains. So our identity blockchain is really just about key holding, which is who can get in and see Jim's account balance or his biometrics or whomever. And that just comes down to, does it, you know, does Everest hold the keys? Does the U.S. Fed hold the keys? Who's, and we made it so that literally we distributed the keys so that no single entity can open your identity data store. So that's one element on just identity. On the transactions, yeah, of course, you have to architect in travel rule, for example. Like you have to be able to stop a transaction and freeze an account. And so that's literally why we did a second transaction. Uh, ledger where you can actually track um, what account is doing what activity and freeze it if you have to. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. basically you layer services on top of the base identity. So you, you can essentially layer in a series of services that say exactly emulated American Express. Yeah. Uh, for instance, I, I use American Express exclusively for all my online transactions because they're great. You call them up and say, don't pay that asshole, right? He fucked me, right? right? He wouldn't yep. take it back and he said, we, we wouldn't take back a broken item when he said he would, don't pay him. And American Express just doesn't pay him. Right. Uh, the other piece you get by separating the identity from the transaction is you get, if you will, you can't collect a bunch of metadata on transactions and find out stuff about the person that probably isn't uh, legal or appropriate. Right, because you've separated, like, here's my UBI exchange, like, here's my, I can verify me, here's my, I can prove I'm American and I'm at this income level. That's great, that's one transaction. If I go to my health provider, I can do the same thing. I can say, here's my identity and I will share my health record for two hours with this doctor. It's a separate transaction, in which case you can't look at the two separate transactions and come back and say, ah, this is Bob. He's clearly taking his money to go to the doctor, right? The separation between the two actually creates a level of privacy, I think, that's uh, it's important in practice. I like this. I think you guys have done some very innovative thinking here in uh, separating the sort of the values and layers of service yet provide the ability to build privacy where necessary. Yeah, we're necessary. I mean, look, if you're going to do an interaction with the government, they're going to know, 
you know, here's the service, here's the information we need to do this service. And we know who you are and that's the way it goes. You want to take our money, yeah. that's the way it goes, right? If you don't want it, don't give it, to, don't, don't ask for it, right? Yeah, exactly. You send over $1,000 from here to the Philippines, you got to produce source of wealth, source of funds, where's it going, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the, you know, as I call it, the social contract. It's also the, you know, social contracts are laws. So we just map in what the law is into, you know, digital to make it easier and more transparent. Well, all right, Bob, this is great. Very well thought out. Uh, and before we wrap up here, and we are trying to keep these extra episodes much shorter than our usual ones, what's it take to get this done? I mean, sounds like you guys have done a lot of thinking. You got the system ready to go with uh, significant funding. You could deploy it in months. That's, you know, being a, a former manager of technology, I take whatever the damn techies tell me and double it. So let's say the end of the year, right? Who has to make the decision? Uh, and how do we get them to make the decision? Oh boy, that's the billion dollar question, isn't it? Quite uh, literally, right? Yeah, it might be the trillion dollar uh, question. So uh, our system's ready to go, it scales, like it's cloud-based. So anything digital in cloud, like we could literally run millions of transactions, no problem. It really will be, how do we get to the decision makers and actually get the relevant stakeholders in the same room Right, you're gonna have the privacy advocates, you're gonna have the Fed, you're gonna have US Treasury, you're gonna have uh, all sorts of folks that actually wanna opine on how to actually get this out. Um, and getting to those people, well, that's about half my day for the last two weeks. Have Every you talked day. to Mnuchin yet? Not yet. Is he the guy? I think it's gonna be somewhere between him or uh, Jerome at the Fed. The way we approach this is we work with organizations that actually can move a million to a hundred million people with a key, if you will, application. So UBI would be a great application. Now, once it's done, CDC or Department of Health or Department of Labor or State of California or Virginia could ride on top of what they've already done because you've got verified identities with wallets with a way to transact. So whoever, you know, the question is, what, what is the killer app and who's the decision-making body to drive the first implementation? And so it very well might end up being um, Gavin up in Sacramento, right? He very well has the appetite and the budget to actually go out and do California properly and get uh, robust systems in place so that California is ready for, uh, you know, the next wave. But the real answer, if we wanted to have it, done for this particular crisis and oh by the way it's possible we won't need it but again as we jordan and i jordan hall and i discussed uh, yesterday uh, part of building a robust and resilient society is making medium-sized bets that you might have to throw away you know let's say it turns out magically we uh, solve this epidemic in september uh, long before we need to continue having ubi next year we have to throw away a few billion dollars oh well right? That would be my view on it in terms of uh, uh, how a society ought to think about hedging its bets. It's interesting. I, I'm actually not seeing it exactly the same way. And I'll give you, you know, some concrete examples of why not, which is the Estonian experience was literally driven by the banks. The banks got tired of paying for know your customer systems. And so they went to the government and said, give me a national ID system where I can actually just KYC everybody. Well, as soon as they did that, then the government looked up and went, well, gosh, now I can deliver like seven government services over the same infrastructure. 
India did the same thing. It's like, let's put a billion one people with biometric identity into the system and then build some rails. So now they're doing pensions. They're now, this is the way you sign up for a bank account. This is the way you do, you know, do 10 other things in society. And so, you know, we're seeing other societies leapfrog ahead, you know, uh, and I think the Americans just need to catch up. So the, we'll have to invest in, in this infrastructure. And the only question is, what are the 10 or three or 30 applications that ride on top of the new infrastructure? Yeah, you're right. You're right. I was wrong. If we build this thing uh, for COVID and we don't need it, we still have a hugely valuable asset for our whole society to make use of. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Bob, this has been amazingly interesting. Anybody who knows how to get to Mnuchin, contact Bob at his, you know, I think you can probably find how to get a hold of him at everest.org. Uh, we need to get uh, Bob sitting down with uh, Mnuchin or the guys at the Fed. We need to get this done. God damn it. That's right. All right, Jim. Thanks All right. So thanks, Bob. This has been uh, uh, remarkably interesting, and I think our listeners will find it you know, important and worth thinking about. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.